0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Batya Ungar-Sagan, Deputy Opinion Editor of Newsweek. She's written for the Washington Post, the New York Times and the Daily Beast. Batya is the author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. If you listen to Under the Skin on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. They really help others find us. Julie says, Terrific five stars. Teacher Taylor, that's an amazing name, says, Always enjoy hearing Russell's take on life. In this part of the interview with Batya, We talk about how media outlets are trying to appeal to one limited demographic and ignoring all other demographics which creates a sort of an illusory space you know they're not talking to all of us they're ignoring a significant percentage of the population I talk about what might lead to a solution to the type of problems we're facing and uh, like Batcher's amazing and eloquent and brilliant in this conversation you'll love it trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. yes that's that's exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss doesn't look like an ideology What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Patia, I think you talk a lot about how um, all news media outlets are trying to appeal to the same limited demographic. Could you tell us a bit about that, please?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, you know, the golden age of American journalism, let's say, like, you know, the 18th century, 19th century and 20th, early 20th century, um, you, you had the 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 media was totally partisan. So this is a thing that I think people, people like to complain that our media is partisan, actually that it's becoming more like the UK where every publication has a kind of political bent and everybody knows what that is and you get the paper that appeals to you. But in the golden age of American media, um, the media was very, very partisan. It was just partisan on behalf of the masses. So you would have a situation like 1920s New York where there were so many communist newspapers that you could be a communist and have five communist newspapers that you would never dream of opening because they were the wrong kind of communists, right? Like that was the situation. There were so many working class Americans, and they had such a plethora of choices. And being journalists, being a journalist it used to be like this very working class trade, you know? Like the kind of person who became a journalist was like, actually, probably someone like you, the guy sitting in the back of the classroom who can't stop cracking whys, who has like a real way with words and hates authority and like the teacher's constantly kicking him out and like, but he's so great, he makes everybody laugh and he feels like it's like, yeah, that's why I was put in this classroom is to give this teacher a hard time because fuck him, who gave him power over me, right? And he was so anti-authoritarian, maybe he had terrible parents that he couldn't go work in the factory because he couldn't listen to directions and he would have been dangerous to everybody around him. So instead of going to the factory, like everybody else in his class, you know, he would become a journalist, right? When he went to be a journalist, he would be introduced to politicians and he would be exactly the same way he was in that classroom. He would think it was his job to defy that authority and demand justice on behalf of the little guy that he lived with, that he still lived in those communities. That was like, most of american journalism and but that same thing that happened those fifth last 50 years where democrats started you know they abandoned the working class they started to rise economically with that tide of that economy they built that's really good for people in knowledge industry jobs journalists started to become more and more highly educated they started to make more and more money and now they're really in the top 10 but you really have to come from money to even become a journalist here actually in the uk it's even worse it's like the top 2% or something but you have to go to these really fancy schools you have to take all these unpaid internships. So if you're working your way through college, you can forget about it. The New York Times, NPR, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, these people take their interns from the top 1% of universities. And there's no more local news. It it sort of disappeared, right? So the class of journalists became like there was just a status revolution. They went from being the little guy demanding justice from the powerful to part of the powerful. They go to school with the people who end up being politicians that they cover. They live in the same neighborhoods and all this stuff. And at the same time, the digital media, um, the way that digital media works is um, your your the way you measure success. I mean, you know this from your show, but is in terms of engagement, right? How many people were engaged? And, you know, it's something probably you also have noticed is like the most engaged people are always the most extreme. So if you're the New York Times, you suddenly have this like overeducated elite class of journalists but you want to be catering to the kids they went to school with who are now living in the same expensive cities because their data is the data that you know matters that they can sell that they can make a profit off of oh luckily for them they know exactly how to appeal to them and how to appeal to their emotions because their newsroom is made up of that exact same class and so when you used to have the situation where like you know a newspaper let's say you'd have a town that was like 50 percent democrats 50 america uh, republicans right and then you had um you know, a uh, 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 one newspaper in this town, right? So, so this, so this newspaper, right? Let's say in the seventies, right? Before the big sorting, the guy who owned that paper, he could make a choice. I could let my journalists report the news in a lefty version, right, and, and get all of the Democrats, but then I lose 50% of the townsfolk. If I report the news straight and have an, a balanced editorial page, I can get the whole town to read my paper. Today in digital media, it's the exact opposite. They don't want any of those other readers and viewers. They only want the 6% of Americans who are progressives, who are affluent, who are living in these coastal cities. Like they, it's very targeted. And because digital media allows you to see who everybody is, who's reading you, and And your journalists know how to get them, how to get their emotions going because they know what makes them emotional. Like it was like this sort of marriage between a new profit motive and then a journalistic class that was like uniquely situated to talk to those people.
0: Well, that's fascinating. Thank you. Also, though, that um, I can as you describe that, Batia, it became clear that men like when you get to the data capture part of that, That is, again, how the economic imperatives bias the reporting of the news that and also, though, how it's led to um, an inaccurate understanding of Americans, let's say, cultural life. Because if you read these newspapers, if you watch these TV shows, you might feel that this is the cultural temperature but actually it's a very small subset so in a, i suppose that the that what that suggests to me is that there is a as when you talk about latent power that there are that this latent power ultimately is a psychic and spiritual phenomena that you're dealing with the p- energy of individuals the attention of individuals the potential ability of individuals galvanized and motivated by a relevant ideology to Transition out of one set of social ideals and into a new set of social ideals. It seems that there's been a sort of a, in a sense, referring to the earlier part of our conversation, a sort of a, a cultural coup in terms of the kind of a linguistic alteration and cultural paraphernalia that fatically represents a set of ideals within this sort of like, you know, movement of progressivism. Again, to reiterate, when it comes to actual racial, gender equality, these are ideas that I'm, I'm of course, supporting. But I've always been cynical about the the deployment of these ideas in corporate and media spaces in the same way that I don't think that Unilever particularly care about green issues and climate change, but that they will utilize these ideas where convenient when it comes to. Um, rebooting, reawakening a dormant class that previously had, as you say, five communist newspapers to choose from, and a sort of a somewhat robust social democratic political movement, and you know even media class, uh, to now a situation where they are unrepresented, ignored, or demonised at best. I, what kind of political movement do you think is required? to reawaken them, given that the most recent examples appear to be sort of ethno-nationalist movements, or at least they've been rendered as such, such as, um, you know, Trump, for an obvious example, Brexit in our country, and even in countries like India with Modi or whatever that dude's called, you know, like sort of where sort of like these retroactive kind of nationalist ideas are reawakened because precisely because they probably have a sort of a nostalgic tug that the progressivism by its nature cannot incorporate so what do you think would be a, a more legitimate set a, a legitimate manifesto or what would be pieces of a legitimate manifesto that m- might reawaken this dormant class?
1: well so we're very lucky in America because this country was founded on an idea rather than an ethnicity um, and of course it was racist for a long time it, it took a, it took many many hundreds of years to um, separate out that idea from uh the racism the structural racism the systemic racism i mean obviously starting with slavery jim crow and even today with um some of the way that policing is done still working on this, but, um, you know, when you listen to someone like Steve Bannon, who's not someone I agree with about a lot of things, but, um, you know, the Stop the Steal thing, obviously I'm sort of not on that train, um, but he he says repeatedly that the nationalism we're discussing here is multiracial and multi-ethnic, and he was the number one backer of um, Kathy Barnett in Pennsylvania, who was a um, Black candidate who was um, the child of rape, actually. Her mother was raped when she was 11 years old by her father, who was 21 at the time. And so she was just a sort of deeply, deeply um, conservative candidate. And she saw herself as the true inheritor of the MAGA movement. And Steve Bannon was the one who sort of pushed her up there and said, this is the real Trump candidate, even though Trump had endorsed Dr. Oz. So I, I, I see no reason not to believe that the nationalism in that movement to obviously there's racists everywhere, but the nationalism in that movement to me, having spoken to many, many, many people who are in the MAGA camp, they, it is not racial at all. It's multiracial, but they have a problem with bringing in immigrants to replace them at work, you know, and the left deep called that racist. They called that ethno-nationalist, um, but, you know, Black Americans it, are the biggest group in the Democratic coalition, up to 85% of them want more rigorous um, restrictions at the border. Like to call those people racist to me is uh, fine. Put me in that camp. I'm in that camp. Like whatever 85% of Black Americans are saying, I'm in that camp. And and to, so why? Why did the Democrats demonize this sort of opposition to open borders as, as racist? Again, like it's like, I don't think they did that like cynically. But at the same time, they are the number one consumers of, you know, unpaid, underpaid, you know, illegal immigrant labor, whether it's domestic servants, um, 50 percent of illegal immigrants are employed as domestic servants and that's not you know they're not doing that in middle America right they're doing that in blue city so again it's like one of these situations that I think they genuinely believe this is a racial justice issue to bring in the poor of other countries, Um, but at the same time they are lining their pockets with this ideology and then they to hide that unconsciously perhaps they demonized people who were saying these people are there you cannot have a wage floor if you have an open border like that's just totally obvious right you know Uh, they'll say oh gdp rose you know with with mass immigration it's like okay gdp for who though
0: if you're enjoying this join me over at luminary on apple podcast for the rest of our discussion and for all the latest episodes of under the skin